Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this season that is still upon us, one in which we can travel and see family and friends, enjoy food and time off from work and school, Lord. This is such a blessing every year. We look forward to it all year long, and it's been filled with a lot of earthly desires, a lot of secular interests. We know, Father, that its core purpose and its origins still find uh, their way back to your Son, as everything does. Thank you, Lord, for this celebration. And Lord, thank you for a little bit of cold weather here where we might enjoy it and feel a little bit more like it's the season. And Lord, we also thank you for uh, keeping us warm in this place. And Lord, thank you for the instruction of your word. Thank you that you took time to write down through men so many things that we could understand about you, that you chose to reveal yourself to us in that way. For without that, Father, we'd be we'd be without any hope to know you and to understand you. And Lord, as I open your word this morning and as we go into the book of Hebrews again, and as we consider what you prepared through that writer's hands, Lord, I ask that you would show us in a very specific way, in each our own way, how what we know may help us live in a more pleasing way for you. Even if it's not immediately apparent, Father, let this knowledge be useful in some way at the right time. And I do pray, Father, that my teaching and my approach to it, my presentation of it will be accurate, Father, that that I'll be representing it properly. But I know, Lord, that if I don't, that's, that's not a problem for you. And you can correct and you can teach in other ways. You can always ensure your truth is heard, and I pray that that would be the case. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 9. Well, we just finished Christmas, as I mentioned, and I think that's actually an appropriate time of year to be studying where we are in chapter 9. In the first eight verses of chapter 9, the writer was using an analogy, if you remember, the analogy of the superiority of the new to the inferiority of the old. And the analogy had two parts in this section. The first part was on the tabernacle, the old tabernacle as an analogy of the heavenly one. And then later we'll get to the second part, which is sacrifices. The sacrifices of the old law, the old covenant, are also an analogy to the sacrifices in the new And in chapter 9, we're looking currently at the first of those two, the analogy of the tabernacle. That is, its design, its purpose, even the way the Lord inaugurated it, opened it for service. All of those things, the writer explains, were analogies or pictures in the Old Covenant of what would be in the New, of what was coming for us in the New Covenant. They all represent Christ and His work in some way. They're intended to teach us that we need a Savior. And now I said this is an appropriate place to be because of the Christmas season. And it's because in verse 11, the writer mentions the appearing of Christ, which is, of course, the birth of Christ and the arrival of Christ into his ministry. He mentions it in verse 11 as the turning point, as the point in which the old gave way to the new. The analogy is being completed. Let's look at that in verse 11. Let's begin there this morning. Verse 11, he says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, Of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. And so that's the the turning point, as you can tell. Verse 11, he says, everything God was doing in the law and in the old covenant, all of that changed when Christ appeared as our high priest. You remember that the heart of this letter revolves around the priesthood. He started with the conversation of Melchizedek. And the order of Melchizedek and Christ fulfilling that order. All of that was where we started because the priesthood is the center of this whole conversation. And as he said in chapter 7, when you get a new priest, then everything else has to change too. 
It means you have a new law. It means you have a new system. You have a new tabernacle because everything goes together. It's all or none. And if Christ is truly a priest in a different order than the one that was prescribed under the law, then we must also conclude that everything else associated with that law has also changed now that we have a new priest. It goes as a whole. And we stopped last week, right, at about verse 14, where the writer gave us the essential and most important difference between the Old and New Covenant. And that was that while the Old Covenant tabernacle existed to permit sinful people to remain in fellowship within their nation of Israel, the New Covenant does something far better. The Old had sacrifices and a tabernacle so that you could remain in fellowship. But the new has a tabernacle with a sacrifice that allows us to have fellowship with God, not with other people, not within a nation, but now men to God reconciled in fellowship. So the new covenant guarantees us eternal blessings in the kingdom, whereas the old, all it did was guarantee that those within Israel could retain the blessings of being part of that nation on earth. The tabernacle sacrifices of the old cleanse the body, but the Tabernacle sacrifice of Christ, the writer says in verse 14, cleansed the conscience, or we could say the soul. So here's the analogy. Here's the comparison that's being built between something of the earth, something for men, something that had limited ability to restore fellowship, all of it being given to Israel to maintain them as a nation, but ultimately being given so that we would have a picture of a greater covenant that was coming in which all of these details would have reference to something greater. A greater tabernacle restoring fellowship with God, not with men, and with blessings that are eternal and can never be lost versus the ones that came under the law which were temporary. Now, at this point, we've reached this point, verse 14, the writer now zeroes in on this idea of a change in law or a change in covenant. Because that's what this analogy is really all about. We had an old, now we have the new. And we are in this new covenant with a living God, but it's not the covenant the Lord gave at the mountain with Moses. It's a different one. Look at verses 15 now through 22. We're still in that first half of of his analogy, the one on the tabernacle, but he's talking now about the covenant that created the tabernacle. Verse 15, he says, For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that... Since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not Inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now the writer begins with, for this reason, verse 15. That phrase takes us back to the previous section, right? He's explaining, for this reason, or in other words, because the old covenant tabernacle service 
and the priests who served in that place, because they could not cleanse our conscience, something else was required. Because, friends, cleansing our conscience is what it's all about. This whole book, our faith, Christ himself, it's all about that problem. We come into the world with a conscience that is not cleansed, but is sinful, due wrath, and we want that problem fixed. And God has made a way. For that reason, Christ became a mediator for a new and better covenant. The writer is answering the question that some in Israel might have been asking at this very moment. Those in Israel who were believers, who were hearing this letter perhaps for the first time, and they were questioning, why would God have replaced a covenant that he went out of his way to create for his beloved people Israel and give to them in the desert? Why does he have to replace that? What's wrong with the old covenant? And you know, friends, there are those in the faith today, those Christians today who have been pulled into an affinity for the old covenant. They romanticized the idea of following a law, of being Jewish even, if that were possible. And they love the law and they love the old covenant and they love all that God did so much that they really can't bring themselves to fully put it aside as God intended. And so they try to mix the two in some respect. And to that, the writer says, the old covenant did not address the fundamental problem of sin, which is barring us from being reconciled with God. It did not even attempt to do so. It's not that it couldn't because it didn't do enough or that it failed or that it somehow fell short. No, it was never intended to do that. And so he says, for that reason, in other words, to solve that problem, he brought a new and better covenant. And it was required that he brought it. It was intended, which is why the old always pictured it. One that brought with it a better priesthood, a better sacrifice, a better tabernacle, the mediator Christ in the center of it all. So in the first part of the verse, he's saying, I had to have this happen for this reason. And then in the second half of the verse, the writer answers a second question, which is, well, then if you have to replace the old, what makes the new better? Why is the new covenant superior? The answer, as the writer tells us, begins with a death, with death itself. The new covenant is better, the writer says, because it provided a sacrificial death that could pay for all the sins that had been committed under the first covenant. Do you notice he says that? He says under the first covenant. The new covenant literally wipes out all the debt that Israel racked up under the old covenant. Because the old covenant had law, it had rules. It said do these things or else you're sinful. But it did not give a means of wiping out that debt. It only provided for the ability for sinful people to be restored in fellowship to one another within the context of Israel. It did nothing, on the other hand, to restore their fellowship with the God they offended through their sin. The sacrifices of the old covenant didn't have the power to do that. And so the new covenant had to come along with the power to provide a sacrifice that God was willing to accept in place of those who offended him in their sin under the first. Look carefully at the second part of verse 15. The writer says Christ became a mediator of a new covenant so that by a death he could redeem the transgressions. You see that phrase redeem the transgressions. The word redemption in that verse literally means to pay a ransom as if someone was hostage and they had the chance to be freed from their captors, but only if you paid a price for them. The ransom was being paid. And then the word transgression, of course, is just the word sin. So Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant in which 
a death happens so that the rest of us, those of us who are sinful, can be set free from our captivity to sin. But why is the new covenant's death capable of making that payment when under the old covenant you also had death, lots and lots and lots of death, the death of animals? Why wasn't that death sufficient to pay the debt? Why is the new covenant better? The answer is because you have a human death. The old covenant tabernacle service never called for human sacrifice. We should all understand that, I'm sure, right? God never put in the law to Israel that they should sacrifice human beings to him. The sad thing is, historically, they did do that. Historically, for a period of their history, the nation of Israel was deceived by wicked rulers, all of them being deceived themselves by Satan, to sacrifice Children. They actually participated in child sacrifice for a period of their history in their own temple. But the law never asked for that. God was never pleased with that. He never wanted that. Because the Old Covenant had no provision for human sacrifice, there could be no way in which the sins of men could be repaid with a death that covered that sin. If a human being sins, the death that is owed for that sin is a human death. The wages of sin is death. Everyone comes to that moment, to their own death, in other words, with their own sin, even children. As a result, there is no satisfaction for God in having human sacrifice because that person's death is merely paying for their own sin. It's not available as a payment to anyone else for their sin. So no matter how many human beings someone might choose to sacrifice against God's wishes, I should add, Nevertheless, none of that is going to satisfy for the sin of even one person. So we are back to the fundamental problem. The old covenant sacrifices could not cleanse the soul or the conscience. They could only cleanse the body, which is a way of saying they could only restore human fellowship. But the new covenant solves this problem. It offers a sacrifice that is capable of paying the ransom for all who are condemned by their sins under the old covenant. And that's Christ himself on the cross. And his death meets the two requirements I just stipulated that Scripture expects. One, as a human being, God could then perform a sacrifice in himself that could stand in your place because it was a human death. That is the central reason why we have God becoming man incarnate. It is so that at his death, he could be a suitable substitute for you and I. But then secondly, Christ, having lived sinlessly, had no sin of his own, and therefore his death was undeserved for himself, making it available as a payment for others. This is the basic gospel message. Sin requires death. God knew that, so he provided a death in our place. One that would qualify to cover our sin. That's the core of the gospel. It's not about earthly prosperity. It's not about joy and happiness. It's not about success. It's about that one issue. And who may enjoy the blessings of this new covenant, of this sacrificial death? The writer says, look at the end of verse 15. Those who are called into faith by the Father are made a part of this covenant. The covenant given to Israel, to make a comparison here, the covenant given to Israel, the old covenant, was a parody covenant. That simply means that it's a covenant in which both parties had certain obligations they had to fulfill. But the new covenant is a suzerainty covenant, which is a fancy word, which simply means that this covenant is bestowed upon someone from a greater authority to the lesser authority. And in that bestowing of the terms, there's no agreement. 
There's no negotiation. There's no choice even. The lesser receives what the greater bestows because the greater is in a position to make it so. Like a king, for example, looking at one of the vassals of his kingdom and saying, I'm going to grant you this parcel of land forever. That would be a suzerainty covenant. The, the vassal doesn't have the choice to even say no. It's just happened because the greater has the power to make it so. The new covenant comes in this form, granted by God to those he calls. We are the recipient of it. So the writer says those who have been called by God into grace are granted the blessings of the new covenant. Now, lastly, in this verse, notice the end of verse 15. The writer says those who are called into the new covenant receive an eternal inheritance. The idea of a last will and testament. Everyone understands this concept, right? Especially as you get older in life, you really begin to understand it, right? A provision, an inheritance which allows us to receive something at the death of another. And in this verse, the writer is introducing this concept of a last will and testament, of an inheritance being associated with a death. Every human being's eternal future has two possible outcomes. They'll either fail to enter into the new covenant, not be a part of the new covenant, and as such, they will pay the wages or the debt for their own sin. That's one option. The other option is they'll be called by the Father into the new covenant by faith so that Christ's death can be a payment for them on their behalf. And then the writer says, if you're in this second group, then you'll also share in Christ's inheritance. The Bible says that the entire earth is Christ's. And upon his second coming, when he sets up his kingdom, the world and all that it contains is his. He already owns it. He won that on the cross. But when he arrives, he will take possession of it. But the Bible also says those who are in Christ will have a share in that inheritance. Literally, Christ will say to me or to you, this piece of my inheritance is now yours. All those in the new covenant will receive some portion of the inheritance of the kingdom. This writer now has said the reason we have the right to part of his inheritance is because of Christ's death on our behalf. That literally, as Christ died, a covenant or the word covenant in Greek can also be translated testament, as in last will and testament, his death put a covenant or a testament into effect. That's what the writer's talking about. That what Christ did for us in the new covenant is something similar to what a dear relative does for us in their own death. Verse 16 and 17, the writer reminds us that where there is a covenant, there must be a death to create it, and until a death occurs, the terms of that covenant aren't in effect. He's talking here about the idea of a will again. So a will is written up before you die, but it's not in effect until you're dead. In fact, it's interesting when you think about the parable of the prodigal son. What the prodigal son is doing as he turns to his father and says, I want my inheritance now, he's essentially saying to his father, you're as good as dead to me. Therefore, I want my inheritance early. That was the effect of his words. So the terms of a will are established before you die, but they only go into effect after the death of the one who makes it. That's what the writer is saying here. Now, when that benefactor dies, those he loves or she loves will benefit from that testament or from that covenant that was written up. And that's how it is with the new covenant and with Christ. The new covenant is like Christ's last will and testament. That's how the writer is comparing it. And just like any covenant or any testament, 
It's designed to bless those that the benefactor loves, which are those he will call into this covenant. So the writer says in verse 18, the old covenant even worked that way as well. Before the terms of that old covenant could begin, and before Israel could begin to receive the blessings that were designed in that old covenant, something had to die. There had to be a death. But in the case of the old covenant, God told Moses, I don't want you to put people to death, I want you to put animals to death. Take some animals, sacrifice them, pour out their blood, and that will initiate, or we would say inaugurate, this old covenant. And the writer recounts that moment in the passage I read. He's actually taking from Exodus 24, which is the moment when this occurs. And if you haven't studied Exodus, it's a really simple scene. If you've watched the movie, you're halfway there. They're all around the base of the mountain. All the people have gathered after the Red Sea crossing, and they're waiting to see what comes next. God calls Moses up the side of the mountain. Moses goes up. God says, here's what we're going to do. I want you to go get the elders. Bring the elders up here. I want you to build a stone altar for me. And then we're going to read out the commandments of the law. And then we're all going to have the 70 elders agree to them on behalf of the people. Because you can't get two million people up the side of the mountain. So we're just going to have your elders come up and do it for you. And then after the reading and after the agreeing, we're going to then sacrifice animals, pour out the blood and sprinkle it on the people and on the altar. And, and we're going to make this the official beginning of this old covenant. So the writer is saying, hey, there was a death involved in the first one, just like there's a death in the new. The difference, of course, is in the quality of the death. Animals versus Christ. And that blood was sprinkled everywhere to signify that the agreement is in force and it could only be broken by the death of those who were in it. Now, once the tabernacle was built, according to God's instructions, a similar ritual was required to inaugurate the use of the tabernacle. The high priest took the blood of animals and he sprinkled it on various places in the tabernacle to cleanse, as it were, all the implements inside the tabernacle, the rooms itself, the furniture that was inside the room, the people themselves before they went into this place. All of this was done with animal blood ritualistically to represent something. The writer says you could say they were all being washed with blood. That's what he's saying. You could say it that way. It's not literally true, right? They're not being washed in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense, we could say that this cleansing of blood is washing the place. And here again, he's making an analogy to the new covenant and to the heavenly tabernacle. The old covenant required an applying of blood to cleanse the sin of men because sin requires a death. But that blood was not sufficient to do away with their sin. It was a temporary accommodation. Now the writer is going to explain how in the new covenant, all of these practices were repeated. But now with better blood... In exactly the same context, the new covenant cleansing of the new covenant tabernacle, that is the heavenly tabernacle. Look in verse 23. He says, therefore, it was necessary for the copy of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, that is with animal blood. But, he says, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So just as was prescribed under the law for the cleansing of that earthly tabernacle, that same process also had to take place for the heavenly tabernacle that is still currently in heaven. We have yet to even see it. How and why was a tabernacle in heaven cleansed of sin? Doesn't that raise that fundamental question? Aren't we wondering, well, wait a minute, I understand why we needed the earthly one cleansed. Why did Christ have to go up and cleanse a heavenly tabernacle 
in keeping with what was done on the earthly tabernacle. Well, first of all, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says this. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You notice that last part of verse 12? He says, our battle is actually against wickedness, a spiritual force of wickedness. And notice it exists where? In the heavenly places. It's not limited to the earth. It also exists in heavenly places. Of course, he's referring to Satan in terms of the force we're talking about here. We should be clear. He's talking about Satan. And we know from Scripture that Satan occupies an abode, a home, both here on earth, but he also has the ability, for at least the time being, to visit the heavenly realm. You see that very clearly in the first chapters of Job. In fact, in Revelation, we're told in Revelation 13, that only at about the middle point of the seven-year tribulation that is yet to come, only then does God once and forever bar Satan from entry into the heavenly places. So for now, he is still able to move into that realm, at least at some times and for some purposes. He is wicked. He is sinful. So he brings that wickedness into the heavenly places, even as he roams the earth as well. Secondly, as you heard in the reading that Chris did this morning, the prophet Ezekiel tells us that Satan defiled the heavenly sanctuaries by his rebellion against God. And I'm going to reread the passage that Chris read because I want it fresh in your mind. In fact, I would strongly encourage you, if you have your Bibles open, to turn to Ezekiel chapter 28, because there's some aspects of what he says here that I will refer to. And it would be helpful, I think, for you to look at them yourself as we're reading it. So verses 12 through 19, Ezekiel 28. I'll read again uh, so you get it fresh in your mind. Verse 12, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I've destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. But the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you and I've turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. Now, if you look carefully at this passage in Ezekiel, you're going to see what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he says that Christ had to cleanse the heavenly tabernacle. First, you notice the writer says Satan was an angel, cherub, 
and that he was created by God and perfectly made. Now, that's our first clue to understand that we're not talking about a human being here. Yes, I know it started off saying the king of Tyre, but that's a reference to something spiritual through a representation of something earthly. Here you see the king of Tyre being used as an example or as a stand in for Satan. And the details of what's said about him make it clear that we're not talking about a human being. The first is he was created in perfection. Friends, no human being after Adam and apart from Christ has ever come into the world created perfectly and then sinned. The Bible says that no one is good, no, not one, that we are brought into the world in a sinful state. So this is talking about something very different. Look, it also says he was full of wisdom and beauty. Verse 15 said he was blameless, at least for a time. And he was splendidly adorned in jewels, Ezekiel says. That's the first thing to notice. So we're talking about Satan back when he was not the bad guy. When he was Satan the good guy. If you can ever imagine him in such a way. There was a time in his beginning when he was that way. Next, notice where Satan lived. He says he lived and served God in Eden. Now, naturally, when you see that, you assume that he's referring to the garden that Adam and woman occupied. And, of course, Satan was in the earthly garden. We see that in chapter 3 of Genesis, no doubt. But if you look more closely at the passage, you see clues that suggest this garden is not the same one as the one in Genesis chapter 3. For example, we're told that in this garden where he served, he was on the holy mountain of God. Friends, the holy mountain of God in Scripture is always a reference to Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is the name for the heavenly Jerusalem, the one that exists right now in the heavenly realm, the one that Revelation 21 says will one day descend and form the new heavens and new earth for us after this one is destroyed. The holy mountain of God, Mount Zion. The writer of Hebrews is actually going to mention this very place later in chapter 12 of this letter. And he will refer to it as in the heavenly realm. Secondly, notice that after he sinned, what does God do with Satan? He says in two different places in that passage, I cast you to the earth. I cast you to the ground. He starts at the mountain of God in the garden and is cast to the ground. It would not be a surprise if from this passage we were to learn that there is a heavenly Eden on which the earthly Eden was patterned. Because we've already seen that. In other places of scripture, a tabernacle being patterned, an altar being patterned, that there are things God has done on earth all along that were intended to give us insight as to what life in his realm was like. Furthermore, notice that Satan served God as the covering cherub. Now, if you studied Exodus, that should immediately jump out at you because over the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, as it's called at the very top of that, Moses was instructed by God to mold two golden cherubs whose wings were to be stretched out over and covering the top of this ark, which is called the mercy seat, that they would be covering cherubs. And they were there to hold or protect or cover the Shekinah glory of God, which would appear underneath their wings in that space. The covering cherub term then would tell us that his role, his job when he was created was to be the angel that got assigned to this most responsible position of covering his glory in not the earthly tabernacle, but the heavenly one over a heavenly mercy seat that still is in heaven today. Notice in verse 18, Ezekiel says, Satan profaned his sanctuaries. The word in Hebrew for sanctuary literally means the holy place or holy places. It's plural in Hebrew. Well, what building has holy places in it? 
Well, the tabernacle has two to be specific. It has the holy place and the holy of holies. These are the two sanctuaries that make up the tabernacle. Yet he is said to have profaned them, profaned them. In other words, he has caused them to go from being holy to being sinful. Now, how did Satan come to defile the heavenly tabernacle when he had been assigned in perfect glory and beauty as the highest angel of all angels, the covering cherub with the role to protect God's glory, not to challenge God's glory? Well, notice first, God says Satan was filled with violence because of pride. Specifically, he took note of the abundance of his trade, as in the thing you do for a living, what you are occupationally. In this context, I would have to refer to his job as the covering cherub, right? He's got the most primo job in heaven among anything God has made. And he's in this position day in and day out. And because of the trade that he had been assigned, it says he is filled with pride. And because of his pride, it becomes violence. Violence literally means to injure by force, to take action against, to rebel against somebody. So what was initially to be an honor for Satan in this role as the covering cherub became cause for him to be filled with a desire to rebel against God. And it appears to me anyway that he so loved seeing himself in this privileged position next to the glory of God, as close to the glory of God as any created thing was in that time, that he began to think he might actually be equal to it or capable of ruling over it. As we know from other places in Scripture, he is seen to be the one who wants to be like God. That's the essence of pride, by the way, that we so love what God has done in creating us that we stop thinking about him and thanking him and we begin thinking only about ourselves. That we love what he's done so much we love ourselves more than him. That's the essence of pride. And we try to replace him in what he is in our life. So first, Satan is filled with violence and pride. Secondly, he's corrupted, the Bible says in Ezekiel 28, he's corrupted by his own perfection. He starts to think he is inherently great and beautiful. That he is inherently what he is. Not made by God to be that way, but inherently that way. Notice in verse 17, Ezekiel says his heart was corrupted by his splendor. As I speculate on what happened next, what act of violence would Satan potentially have taken upon himself, given his role and his beauty? Well, I go back to Scripture again for my answer in a roundabout way. We know that the tabernacle on earth is a picture or a pattern of the one in heaven. We can also see other aspects of creation that are patterned on earth from things in heaven. For example, the Temple Mount on earth is a representation of Mount Zion in heaven, as we've already said. The Garden of Eden appears to have been another one of those representations of something in heaven. So what does it mean that he responded in violence to God's authority in heaven? Well, we should look at what we see happening on earth with Satan. What is his pattern on earth? And then we might have a better sense of what he might have done in heaven. And if you look, you find that. On at least two occasions, if not more, Satan performs something called the abomination of desolation in the book of Daniel. And Jesus mentions this also in Matthew. This is the moment when Satan, working through a human being, seats himself in the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God in the earthly tabernacle. He accomplished this one time with Antiochus Epiphanes uh, about 40 or 50 years before Christ's birth 
when Rome came in and conquered Greece and took over Judea. Uh, Antiochus was a general and he stepped into the tabernacle that had been operating there in Jerusalem and he sacrifices a pig on the altar, which is a desecration of the temple. And then he seats himself in the mercy seat and says, I am God, trying to pretend he could do what God does. We know that that pattern repeats itself, according to Daniel, in the middle of tribulation, when Satan occupies the body of a man called the Antichrist and directs him to go into the earthly tabernacle that's operating in that day and repeat this very same moment of seating himself in the mercy seat, claiming to be God. My speculation is Satan, as a covering cherub, in that same position next to the mercy seat, in the role that God gave him, became convinced by his own importance and by his own beauty that he could be God. That he didn't have to play the covering cherub anymore. He could get up and sit down in that place of honor. And that his moment of violence was when he tries to seize the mercy seat in the heavenly tabernacle, declaring himself to be God. Pure speculation. I'm going to continue to say that so that I don't confuse you with what the Bible says versus what I say. So it could be totally wrong. It fits the details in some respect, and it follows a pattern you can see elsewhere. That's the reason why I make that speculation. Whatever he did, it left God with no choice but to cast him down from the mountain of God in heaven. In verse 16 and in verse 17, we hear that he was cast to the ground. And in verse 18, he declares, I'm casting you to the earth. Now, we know he does this prior to Genesis 3, because by the time you get to Genesis 3, Satan is already in sinful form. He's already roaming the earth and you already see what he did. So it would seem that he was roaming the earthly Garden of Eden because he had been cast out of the heavenly role in the heavenly garden of God. And Jesus, I think, makes allusion to this in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, when he says to his disciples, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Which may be a reference to this same moment. So back to Hebrews to conclude for the day. The writer Hebrews says the heavenly tabernacle was in need of cleansing before its high priest, Jesus, could set up shop and begin his work in that tabernacle. And that cleansing had to be accomplished by blood. And blood means someone had to die. And in the case of the new covenant, the cleansing is done by the blood of Christ, who died as needed to inaugurate the covenant. Jesus, after his death and his resurrection, moved into the heavenly realm with his own blood and used it to cleanse that tabernacle from the unrighteousness that had polluted it earlier when Satan did what he did. Just as the high priest of Israel had to cleanse the earthly tabernacle with animal blood before they could inaugurate the use of that building. It's by the blood of Christ that the heavenly tabernacle is restored and the high priest is installed. And now that the high priest is installed, the covenant is in effect. And now that it's in effect, it's perpetual for that covenant has no end. It's a suzerainty grant. It doesn't depend on performance. This is an opportunity for us to contemplate some more deeply understood areas of doctrine, to consider if we've got it right, to consider did I get it right. That's all valid questioning. But if we're even in the ballpark, if we're even close, and I think we are because of what the writer of Hebrews has just said, then can your works save you when the thing that stands in our way is a defiled sanctuary that has not even yet been touched by human hands? How does a human work on earth solve that problem in heaven? It can't. It shows to an even greater degree how far human works are from the real solution that reconciles us to God, which is the death of Christ alone and his blood applied in a heavenly realm that we haven't even visited yet. 
Let's go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the work of Jesus. A thanks seems wholly inadequate when we consider all that was done on our behalf. It reminds us, Father, that what you did, you did solely for your own glory. And that, yes, we are beneficiaries of the death of Christ because of your love, Father. You made this way possible. We know that, but you did it for your own glory. You did it to restore your sanctuary and to make possible a relationship with men that you desire. That you are the center of this plan, and we acknowledge that, Father, and we thank you for it. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, grant us understanding in these things and correct us in areas where the the teaching has been in error. And I pray, Father, that you would correct me as needed. But as we do strive, Father, to understand these things better over whatever time you give us, Lord, we, we also take satisfaction in knowing that one day we will see clearly and know these things truly and, and take you in face to face. So we wait eagerly for that day as well. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.